Henry, Henry's wife, his first wife, died, uh, had a miscarriage of a child and actually died during the time of that miscarriage. And after that, it took quite a while for him to woo the affections and get into the place where he was ready to marry again, but he eventually did. And he took a second wife whose name was Frances, and he won her affection, he wooed her, and he deeply loved her. In the 18 years that they were married, Henry would say, were the happiest 18 years of his life. But they were cut short after that 18 years because in 1861, when his wife was uh, preparing to mail some letters, she was sealing the envelopes with hot wax. And while doing that, her clothes actually caught fire from the candle. It caught fire as much as Henry tried to help and come to her aid and run to her side and put the fire out. It was, it was too late. She couldn't recover from the wounds, and even Henry himself uh, suffered some wounds to his own body, to his face specifically, so much so that he would end up growing a large uh, beard that most people knew him by later in life, but didn't know why he had grown it to cover up the disfigurement of his burned face. He had a profound grief, as you could imagine, now a widower twice, and father of six children that he and Francis had. So heavy was his grief that on Christmas Day in 1862 at the family's house on Brattle Street in Cambridge, Massachusetts, he would write these words in his journal, a Merry Christmas say the children, but that is not for me, Henry wrote. Then in March of the following year of 1863, Henry's son Charlie walked out of the door of his family's house in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and unbeknownst to his family, boarded a train bound for Washington, D.C., traveled the 400 miles down the eastern seaboard to join President Lincoln's Union Army and to fight in the Civil War. Henry himself was a staunch abolitionist and hated slavery, but he was also a widower and a father, and he loved his son. It was hard to see him go. But when he got down there, Charlie arrived at D.C., he sought to enlist as a private with the 1st Massachusetts Artillery. Captain McCartney, commander of Battery A, wrote to Henry for permission for Charlie to become a soldier. And Henry, as hard as it was, granted his permission. Later, though, Henry would write some letters to some friends of his. He wrote a letter to Charles Sumner. Yes, of the Sumner Tunnel fame. He was a senator from Massachusetts. He wrote a letter to John Andrew, the then governor of Massachusetts. To Edward Dalton, medical inspector of the 6th Army Corps, to lobby for his son to become an officer. 
But the letter wasn't necessary. Charlie had already impressed his fellow soldiers and superiors with his skills. And on March 27, 1863, he was commissioned as a second lieutenant in the 1st Massachusetts Cavalry assigned to Company G. After participating on the fringe of the Battle of Chancellorville in Virginia, Charlie fell ill with typhoid fever and was sent home to recover. He rejoined his unit on August 15th of 1863, having missed the Battle of Gettysburg that occurred the previous July. While dining at home, Henry, dining at home on December 1st, 1863, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow received a telegram that his son, had, barely, had severely been wounded four days earlier. On November 27, 1863, while involved in a skirmish during a battle of the Mine Run campaign, Charlie was shot through the left shoulder with the bullet exiting under his right shoulder blade. It had traveled across his back and skimmed his spine, and he avoided being paralyzed by less than an inch. He was taken to a local church and then transported, but in the meantime, Henry and Charlie's younger brother, Ernest, went immediately down to Washington, D.C. and arrived on December 3rd, and they met Charlie on December 5th in order to take him back to Massachusetts. He was injured, but not killed. And yet Longfellow, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, now had this pain added to his already painful life. So it was on Christmas Day of that year, 1863, Christmas Day, that Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, 57 years old, twice widower, father of six children, and now nursing the health of his oldest son, having been shot in war, whose country is at war, sat down at his home in Nahant, Massachusetts. And in that home on Nahant on Christmas Day, he could hear the bells of Boston coming across Boston Harbor and ringing out the joys of Christmas Day. And as he sat there on Christmas Day in 1863 in Nahant, he penned the words of this poem. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play. And wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And thought how, as the day had come, the belfries of all Christendom had rolled along the unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Till ringing, singing on its way, the world revolved from night to day, a voice, a chime, a chant sublime of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then from each black, accursed mouth, the cannon thundered in the south. And with the sound, the carols drowned of peace on earth, goodwill to men. It was as if an earthquake rent the hearthstones of the continent and made forlorn the households born of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair, 
I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail with peace on earth, goodwill to men. The words of Henry Wadsworth Longfellow on that Christmas day, 1863. I imagine some of you knew that story. After first service, I had a few people come up to me saying they knew exactly who I was talking about as soon as I said Henry. I didn't know that story. I, I think it's a fascinating story behind the song and behind the poem. It's a fascinating story of a, of a man's grief and pain and search for hope. I don't know the faith status of Henry Wordsworth Longfellow. Don't know where he stood with God. There are conflicting reports throughout his life. But in this poem, I think he got a couple things 100% right. In fact, he made two statements that I think are dead on theologically accurate. One of which I think everyone who's ever lived on earth would agree with. The second of which every Christian should agree with. But then even in those two statements, he left unanswered a huge question that I'd like us to look at as our final thing this morning. Two statements that he got right and a huge unanswered question. The first statement that I would say that Henry Wordsworth Longfellow got absolutely right is Jesus came, but peace on earth did not. He said it uh, this way, Uh, Hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Uh, You don't have to be a scholar or even that uh, knowledgeable to understand this truth. Um, It's true today as it was in Longfellow's day as it has been since the first sin in the Garden of Eden. That there's hurt and there's pain in the world around us. I think this is the truth that every person would embrace, that that though Jesus came, peace on earth has not fully come yet. You can look at any measure of you want to use, whether it's just turning on the news and the divide in our own political parties, the constant wars and rumors of wars, the possible nuclear capability of nations around the world, North Korea, Iran, the Paris Accords, Brexit, famine in Yemen, the Syrian refugees, civil wars among nations, all kinds of places point to the fact that Jesus came, but peace on earth has not yet. Be hard to argue otherwise. You can look in your own family. Maybe you've got the same pain that Longfellow had around your table at Christmas, that there's an empty chair that used to be occupied that keeps reminding you. That peace on earth has not come fully. Maybe there's an empty chair of someone because you're Uh, not reconciled relationally to that person and and there's fighting and infighting in your own family or this personal pain within your own self, things in our world that exist that people deal with anxiety, depression, suicide that remind us that peace on earth has not come even though Jesus has. 
And the truth is, there's people that because of this reality and because of this truth will begin to mock and scoff at the idea that Jesus came, but it hasn't changed anything. Has it really changed anything? I mean, the manger, Bethlehem, all those things we talk about, all those things we remember, has it really changed anything? In fact, the mockers and the scoffers will come and say it did not change anything. You may have people who actually put up lights, exchange presents, but in the back of their mind, they withhold full and real belief and engagement because they've been through this and they know how it goes. In two weeks, the music stations will go back to playing what they usually play. The Merry Christmases will stop, the tree will go to the curb, the decorations go back in the attic, and just as certain and as quickly as the colored lights go out on the house, the world will go back to the way it was with the exception of a few more plastic things occupying places in our houses. And they say, did it change anything? Time goes by and they say whatever happened two weeks ago or two years ago when we get past Christmas or even 2,000 years ago in a little town of Bethlehem, did it really change anything? Mockers will mock, scoffers will scoff. They'll say it hasn't changed anything. The world just keeps going on as it's always gone on. It reminds me, as I was thinking about this, as a passage of Scripture where the Apostle Peter actually speaks directly to people who are mocking and scoffing at this idea that the world just keeps going on and it doesn't change in any way. And I want to look at that passage this morning with you. It's in 2 Peter chapter 3. And if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn there. If you don't have one, there's one in a chair rack not far from you. Or just click over in your device to 2 Peter chapter 3. Verses 3 through 14. We're going to spend our time there this morning. And as you're turning there, if you're using one of the Bibles in the chair, I think it's about page 1019. Um, As you're turning there, let me just set the stage of what Peter, this is the Apostle Peter, a follower of Jesus, what he's writing to, what his context is. He's actually writing to Christians. He's writing to people who are following Jesus in a church, but he's writing to people who are uh, around people and in a world where people are scoffing and mocking. And here's what they're mocking. They're mocking the idea that Jesus is going to come back again. They're skeptical. They're suspicious. They're incredulous that this is going to happen. See, we remember at this time of year, Christmas, we remember that first advent, the first coming of Jesus in the manger in Bethlehem. But the Bible says there's a second coming of Jesus. There is a second advent where Jesus will come back again. And the apostles and the followers of Jesus were preaching this. This same Jesus that went into heaven is going to come back down and you ought to live lives ready for when he comes. And they were preaching this. And when Peter's writing, he's only, what, 30, 40 years out from Jesus being taken up? And they're already scoffing and mocking. They're already saying, we don't believe it. And listen to their words. They might not sound too different than others that would scoff and mock the manger. Here's what they say. First Peter, uh, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. We'll start there. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing following their own sinful desires, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? 
For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. I mean, this sounds a lot like people, words that people might say today. That it's, it's not going to happen. Nothing has changed. Nothing has made a difference. The manger happened. It's not going to make a difference. Everything goes on just the way it always has. And these were saying in Peter's day, it's not going to make a difference. What's the difference? Everything seems to be going on the way it always has. Why should I change the way that I live? There's scoffing and there's mocking. I think this is one thing Longfellow got right and every human would agree with. Jesus came, but peace on earth has not yet come. So hold that thought for a second. Let's move on to the second thing that I think is true in this poem and a great theological statement that every Christian should agree with. Peace on earth hasn't come, but it will. And this is what Peter's talking about. He's saying, there's a time coming, even though everything has not been made right yet, make no mistake about it, there is a time coming when everything will be made right. I mean, Wadsworth might say it, the wrong shall fail, the right prevail, but those are just his words. Here's the way God says it in Scripture in Revelation 21. God says this, then I saw, writing through the Apostle John, writing these words, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people, and God himself will be as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Now that sounds like peace on earth. And that sounds like what we hope for when we talk about peace on earth, that this is what's coming. This is what's coming. Peace on earth hasn't come, but it will, and every Christian should believe that and hold on to that. And that's a truth that comes. There's an immense hope that is given in this poem by Longfellow, but more importantly, in the scriptures. And it comes not at the first advent of Jesus' coming, but at the second advent of his coming. Peter, in the same passage we're in, let's skip down to verse 10, says this. But the day of the Lord, that's the second coming, that's the second advent, that's Jesus coming back again. And the term scripture uses for that is the day of the Lord. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? waiting and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the earthly bodies will melt away as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Uh, Peace on earth hasn't come, but what Peter's saying, it will come. 
Uh, make no mistake about it. Don't, don't, don't make a mistake. It will come eventually. It just hasn't come yet. It's interesting when we light the candles of Advent, the anticipation. Advent was originally started to help us to make ourselves ready. <clears throat> ready not for Jesus' first coming. We don't, I mean, we remember Christmas, but we know he came. We know we're living past that. Really, it's remind us that we need to be ready for his next coming. We need to be ready when he returns. We need to be ready when he comes back. And that's all Peter is saying. Peter is saying, look, peace on earth hasn't come, but make no mistake about it. It is going to come. And so we have uh, the reality of our situation. Jesus has come, but peace on earth hasn't. We have an immense hope that one day it will to hold on to. But as far as the poem, we're kind of left there. There's a huge question. What about this time? What about the space in between those two verses? What about the time in between the time where Jesus came and the time where Jesus is coming? What's the purpose of that? Because it seems we all live in that time. We all live in the time between when he came the first time and when he's coming the second time. And the reason many scoffers and mockers mock is because this time looks like all other time. And what difference did the manger make? What difference did his coming make? And has God just taken his hands off and forgotten everything? Peter says no. And he gives us a clear reason and purpose for the time that we are living in. In fact, let's go to that, speaking of in-between time, let's go to that in-between passage between the two we read already. So we have scoffers and mocking in the beginning of the passage. We have the end of the passage that talks about the second advent and how God's going to bring about his righteousness. What's in the middle? What's in the middle where we live? Verse 5. For they, those that scoff and mock, for they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Here's what Peter says. Don't make mistake about it. Don't mistake delay for disinterest. Don't mistake God delaying his judgment for God's disinterest in this world or lack of power to do anything in this world. What he's saying is in the beginning there was nothing and God's word spoke and he created everything. 
And then God came to a time of judgment. He's talking about waters. He's talking about Noah. And God judged and stepped in and judged in that time. And he said, and now we're in that time again in between where God is saying, look, this time's going to come to an end and make yourself ready because make no mistake about it. His delay is not disinterest. He's powerful and he's active. And he's worked in the past and he'll work in the future. And do not mistake his delay for disinterest. And here's what Peter says. There's a purpose for the in-between time. See, what happened was this in the Old Testament. Why is it that sometimes we, we see these, the Old Testament prophets like in our passages that we read at Christmas time? Let me just read one of them for you. Isaiah chapter 9. Here's a, you'll see it in a lot of Christmas cards that'll come to your house. And you'll read these words. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of the hosts will do this. That sounds like peace on earth. But for unto us a child is given. We talk about that at Christmas time child. So why is that? Why is it that we have all these prophecies in the Old Testament that talk about a child coming, a Messiah being born, and peace on earth in the same breath, but it hasn't happened. Jesus has come and there's not peace on earth. The best way I can describe it to you is if you're looking at two objects from a distance. And when you're looking at two objects and you're far away from them at a distance, you can tell, you can't really tell, I'm sorry, you can't really tell how much room is in between them. And when, uh, the best I can tell is, the best I can explain is a view of an Old Testament prophet is, look, these things are there. God is going to do this. There's no question about it. God is going to send a Messiah. Somehow it's going to be a child. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. We know that. And when he comes, there's going to be peace on earth. But what they couldn't see is there's a depth and a distance between these two. What they couldn't see, because God had not revealed it yet, is there will be two comings of this Messiah. And there's an in-between space. An in-between space that you and I live in. In between that first coming and the child being born and the righteousness reigning and the wonderful counselor and the king reigning on high. So why the in-between space? What is the purpose of it? Peter tells us, we read it in that verse, says in that verse, in verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. He's given us this in-between time so that we would recognize, first of all, that we are the problem, to recognize we're the ones that need to be fixed. It's not God that's not on the job. We are the ones that are the problem. And if we think about it, we know that. There's a lot of solutions that I think our world comes up with to try and bring peace on earth. Because even if you're, you're a Christian or you're not a Christian, all of us would love peace on earth. But the solutions that most of our world comes up with are subtractionist solutions. 
If you just subtract some things, get them out of there, there'll be peace on earth. If we can get rid of guns, if we can get rid of geographical boundaries, if we can get rid of inequities of wealth and privilege, if we can get rid of racial divides, if we can get rid of distinctions that divide us. And I'm not saying we don't work for more uh, ways that help us to love one another well. What I am saying, though, is I think we have to be honest with each other that even if we got rid of all these things, and some would say if we could get rid of religion, that that would solve the problem. Even if we had to get rid of all these things, would it really bring peace on earth? You and I know each other too well. You know yourself too well to know that even if those things were gone, that sometime you'd have a couple that would come together or two people that would come and it would start as a disagreement and it would go to an argument and then you'd have your people choose your side and I'd have my people choose my side. And then we'd fight and we'd argue and it'd end up in, and it'd escalate and there'd be wars and we'd be right back to where we are. Because we're the problem. We're the ones that need to be fixed. We're the one that needs need some kind of solution. Recognize that we are really the problem, but then receive the solution that God offers. And Peter says in this verse, God is not slow, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God has given this time not because of disinterest. He's given it in his mercy. See, there's another explanation the mocker will say, what's just going on? It's all the way it always has. There's no difference. But there's another explanation. God's mercy and patience has allowed this time so that as many as would receive and respond can come to him and receive forgiveness and grace and salvation from the consequences of our wrongdoing and our sin. And he's not being disinterested. He's not being aloof. He hasn't taken, he's actually just the opposite. He's withholding judgment so that you might receive grace and mercy. He's offering a gift to us. And this in-between time that we live in, in between when, when peace on earth is promised and when peace on earth will come, is an opportunity for you to come to know the God of all peace, to come to know him and embrace and receive the solution that he offers to you. And it starts with peace in your own heart and peace with God, your creator. Because the first thing and ultimate thing, that's what we ultimately need. To receive God's solution and then to resolve to live this in-between time waiting with purpose for the peace that will come. Verse 14 of this passage says this, therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish. And the last word of this verse, and at peace. Peace in all the earth? Nope, not yet. But peace with God, your creator. Peace with God and peace in your own heart 
and as much as possible, peace with the people who live with around, around you. Live your life spotless, holy. In other words, be ready for when God is going to return. Resolve to make yourself ready, living out the life that God has called you to. Resolve to live with purpose even in this in-between time. And when you wait with purpose, you wait with peace. Following Jesus doesn't mean you deny the reality that you see around you. It doesn't mean we deny the reality of the pain in the world around us. It doesn't mean we throw up our hands and don't endeavor to to love and to live out and show and share the love of Jesus in the world around us. It doesn't mean we huddle together and just ignore everyone else around us. It doesn't mean we deny the reality because some people will say that. Well, you Christians, you you just deny this reality. You live in a fairy tale world doesn't mean we deny the reality of the world we see, but it does mean we refuse to believe this is all there is and this is all there ever will be. We trust that God is bringing about his plan. We trust that one day God will bring complete and right righteousness and justice, just as Peter and Isaiah say. And we trust and hope in the Lord. God is not dead nor doth he sleep. Wrong shall fail and right prevail. That's coming and that's what we hold on to. But in the meantime, we serve God and we trust the words of Jesus, who John recorded his words in chapter 16, verse 33, saying, Jesus said this, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. That verse holds both realities. Trouble, tribulation, difficulty. Yep, not denying those. But I give you my peace. In me, Jesus says, you can even have peace in the midst of the storms and the world that you live in. And that's the tension that we live in. We're not denying the reality of the world, but neither are we denying the fact that God has worked in the past and that he's going to continue. He's going to be faithful to the word that he's given and we need to be ready because there are a lot of people, we talked last week, that were not ready and did not anticipate Bethlehem and did not anticipate Jesus coming in that way and denied it And yet God has given us this time in between to make ourselves ready for when he will come again. Let's pray. If you're here this morning and you have never received the gift that God offers you, as we close our eyes in prayer and as we take time to just focus on the Lord, I believe God has you here to know that he, to let you know that he is offering you a gift. He is offering you a gift of his salvation. He is offering you a gift of forgiveness from your sin and from your wrongdoing. I don't have to convince you that you have sinned or done wrong. We know that. But what do you do with that? How do you resolve it? I believe God has you here this morning so you would know and hear that he's offering you a gift through his son, Jesus Christ. He's offered you this gift of this time in between. He's withheld his judgment 
so that you might receive salvation and forgiveness through Jesus Christ. Freedom from those things that hold you down and those things that have uh, kept you from being in relationship with your God and your Creator. But like any gift, it's yours to accept or reject. It's not forced upon you. And you have to receive it, open it, take it, and make it your own. God hasn't made it difficult. He's already done the hard work. What you do is you release your life to Him, confess your need for Him, for forgiveness, and ask Him to lead your life and commit to following Him. It's not difficult. But it is a huge step to take your hands off the wheel and say, God, my life is your life. I give myself over to you. And if you're here this morning and you've never done that, you've never received that gift and you'd like to do that, in your own words, right where you're at, I'd ask you to just do that, just to confess to God, Lord, I need you. God, I, I, I want to accept this gift of mercy in this in-between space before it's too late and before you no longer withhold judgment. And I want to receive this gift from you. And I want to know you and I want to follow you and I want that peace that you offer through Jesus Christ. I want peace with my God. I want peace with my Creator. Jesus, I come to you and I trust in you. And I ask that you will lead me and be Lord of my life. And if that's your desire, I encourage you in your own words to pray that prayer and tell the Lord that. Perhaps you've heard this time and time again, but this morning would be the time that you'd receive and open the gift that God is asking and offering you. <clears throat> Lord, I pray for each and every man and woman that's in here today. Lord, it, we just read it in your word. It is not your will that any should perish. Your desire, you, the reason you're so patient is because you want everyone to receive. You are not unfair. You are overly merciful to us more than we deserve. You're more gracious to us than we deserve. And so, Lord, I pray that each and every person here that you'd speak to them and you'd speak to us and let us know how much we need you and how much you offer to us. And Lord, I pray that you would help those of us that are followers of you in this world that still has not come to see your peace and justice and righteousness about, that we would live out the commands that you've given us to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbor and those around us just like we love ourselves, Lord. Lord, that we would be your vessels and that we would be representatives of you in this world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.